I am not banning fracking. Let me say that again. I am not banning fracking. All right, let's do it. Let's talk about fracking. Welcome to Acclimated. I uh, I wasn't sure I was going to do an episode on this topic, to be honest with you, but uh, it's been persistent. The issue has come up all throughout the 2020 election during both the primary and the general. Uh, it sparked another round of um, tense conversations after the vice presidential debate, where Pence claimed that Biden wants to ban fracking, and then Harris corrected him. First of all, I will repeat, and the American people know, that Joe Biden will not ban fracking. That is a fact. That is a fact. Joe Biden's economic plan, Moody's, which is a reputable Wall Street firm, has said will create 7 million more jobs than Donald Trump's. And part of those jobs that will be created by Joe Biden are going to be about clean energy and renewable energy. Because you see, Joe understands that the west coast of our country is burning, including my home state of California. Joe sees what is happening on the Gulf states, which are being battered by storms. Joe has seen and talked with the farmers in Iowa, whose entire crops have been destroyed because of floods. And so Joe believes, again, in science. I'll tell you something, Susan. I served, when I first got to the Senate, on the committee that's responsible for the environment. Do you know this administration took the word science off the website and then took the phrase climate change off the website? This, we have seen a pattern with this administration, which is they don't believe in science. And Joe's plan is about saying we're going to deal with it, but we're also going to create jobs. The last bit about believing science has become something like a motto among Democrats over the past few years when discussing climate change. Clinton used it in her Democratic National Convention speech in 2016, for example. But does maintaining an active fracking industry actually align with the claim that the party believes in science? Fracking has sort of become the kind of issue that is regularly brought up in political conversations, but rarely given much context or detail. The question about whether or not someone supports fracking is just kind of posed without any conversation about what that actually means. So this episode is just going to be my attempt at kind of collecting and summarizing a bunch of resources that have helped me to kind of understand the industry and make some sense of it. So it'll be a little different than the past few episodes. There's not much of a narrative hook here, as I'm just going to be trying to give a bit of an overview of the topic. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get to everything, obviously, but hopefully I can touch on a couple of major issues and give some examples without necessarily going super in-depth on any one thing. There's also not going to be much in the way of uh, like audio samples to edit in and reference, that sort of stuff. It'll be a bit like a monologue, or I guess uh, even more like a monologue than the show usually is, so apologies in advance for all of that. 
I'm putting together a document with a list of references and links for all the stuff we'll be talking about today. I should have a link to it over on Twitter once this episode is up. So if you're interested, the handle is at acclimatedpod, one word. There's been some really excellent reporting on this topic over the last decade or two. It's been super helpful for me when trying to get my head around this stuff. Some of it is more like conventional business and uh, oil industry reporting. So probably not super sympathetic to the perspective we're going to be getting into today. Um, but it's useful for data and kind of also to get a sense of how this issue has been framed uh, in the news over the past you know, 20 years or so. But anyway, yeah, fracking does indeed have to end. I'll come back to that and the whole issue of believing science later in the episode. First, we'll get to how it works. Hydraulic fracturing is used to retrieve oil from deposits that are contained within impermeable rock, so the oil isn't flowing. So what they do is they pump huge amounts of fluid, a combination of water and sand and a variety of chemicals, which we'll talk about in a second. They pump huge amounts of this uh, underground into an oil well, which creates pressure that then splits open or fractures the rocks. And once the rocks are split open, the oil is released and can be retrieved. Same idea applies when fracking for natural gas. The technique has been around for a long time, actually. Um, companies have been fracking for decades in the U.S., but it wasn't until the late 90s, maybe into the early 2000s, that the practice really took off. This is partly because the technology became more sophisticated, which made it possible to extract oil and natural gas from deposits that were previously considered too challenging or expensive to develop. And then this combined with uh, other economic and political factors that put pressure on the U.S. to expand its domestic oil and gas production, which led to federal and state level deregulation that really aimed to encourage fracking's expansion. This all eventually contributed to a boom in domestic oil and gas production that began in the uh, mid-2000s, and that in a lot of ways reshaped both the U.S. and global energy industries. The U.S. is now among uh, the top oil producers in the world, uh, and that is due in large part to the growth of fracking. Fracking is a really physically disruptive process, and the very nature of it means that it's nearly impossible to guarantee that it won't have impacts on the surrounding areas and communities. And there are a lot of potential impacts because the process involves injecting major quantities of liquid underground, for example, fracking can contaminate local water supplies. So let's look at the chemicals that go into the fluids that might end up in someone's water. Actually, we can't really do that. The uh, specific chemical composition of these fluids has often been classified as a trade secret, which means that the companies don't have to inform the public about what actually is in them. This can make studying the side effects of their use pretty difficult. Anyone trying to test local water sources for the existence of chemicals used in fracking might not even know which substances they should be looking for. And the use of fracking fluids is actually exempt from regulations typically provided by the Safe Drinking Water Act and Clean Water Act. At times, the U.S. government has relied on research studies paid for by the oil industry to substantiate its claims that fracking is safe. In some cases, the boards that have then reviewed these studies and their findings have had former oil executives on their panels. This has obviously had a um, particular kind of influence on the discussion around regulation and transparency within the industry. But even with these obstacles in place, communities and researchers and journalists and independent investigators have all been able to identify trends in fracking impacts across the country. ProPublica published a, a great long-form investigation back in 2011 called Hydrofract that I think provides a, a really good overview of these issues. The piece covers a lot of ground, but sort of focuses on the experiences of a man in Wyoming who began to notice changes in the water on his ranch in 2005. He suspected that the fracking nearby was the cause and spent years trying to raise uh, awareness in hopes of getting the government to investigate and potentially regulate the practice. 
the peace documents his experiences with that, but also uh, the health problems suffered by people in his area as they continued to drink and use their water, which had grown discolored and acquired a scent like gasoline. People in the area who consumed it reported losing their sense of smell, experiencing shortness of breath, feeling sharp pains, later linked to nerve damage. But this type of experience wasn't limited to Wyoming. The piece notes that in Colorado, for example, a nurse came in contact with fracking fluids on the clothing of an oil worker and suffered nearly fatal organ failure after treating him. Cattle and other animals across the country that have ingested fracking fluids or wastewater from the surrounding landscapes have died afterward. And of course, there's been plenty of other reporting over the past decade that speaks to how widespread fracking-related health issues are. Uh, in Pennsylvania, for example, which is at the center of so many of these conversations right now, people living near fracking sites have reported regular dizziness and nosebleeds, likely related to an increase in uh, pollution from the activity, and others have spoken of severe stomach pain after drinking contaminated water from their tap. There's also the issue of radioactivity. Um, there was a really good piece on this published back in the beginning of this year that I'll include in the references document. Um, but basically, radioactive material is often pulled up to the surface during the process of extracting oil and gas from underground. It comes up in brine, which is like a waste byproduct of the drilling. Uh, brine usually has to be brought somewhere else to be disposed of. The oil and gas industry claims the uh, amount of radioactivity is minute, but research and the experiences of people working in and living near these sites has shown otherwise. One truck driver in Ohio took samples of the brine he hauled for work and had those samples tested and found radium levels hundreds of times greater than the legal limit set by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for uh, industrial waste products. And these are materials that workers are exposed to routinely for hours and hours every single day on the job. They often aren't informed that they may be exposed to radioactive material at all and they don't receive proper protective equipment. This means that they bring it with them without knowing it back to their families and their homes and the material travels all over the country without real oversight. Lawsuits in Louisiana revealed that workers in the oil and gas industry were constantly exposed to radioactive material, and many were diagnosed with cancers as a direct result of their work. This is all possible because back in 1980, the EPA granted the oil and gas industry an exemption from the requirement that waste from oil and gas wells needed to be treated as hazardous waste. A few years later, they uh, revisited the decision, decided to maintain it, because the issue of radioactive waste was so prevalent that requiring the industry to properly handle it uh, would be too expensive and would therefore threaten the industry's viability. States can decide to regulate this more aggressively, but this is obviously not as comprehensive, uh, and many haven't followed through on that. Beyond these immediate threats to health and safety, fracking also is a source of both um, short and long-term environmental degradation. This is necessary for its operation. Uh, in some places like Pennsylvania, fracking has involved the clearing of huge amounts of land through deforestation, which obviously has profound impacts on uh, biodiversity in the area. Fracking, as I mentioned earlier, requires enormous amounts of water, up to a few million gallons per well. This usually means hauling in water via truck, which has its own set of environmental impacts. Um, but water is not an abundant resource everywhere. Western North Dakota, for instance, does not get a ton of uh, rainfall every year. There are places where the aquifers that communities rely on for their water supply are being depleted faster than their replenishment rate due to the use of water for fracking. So even before we get into pollution or global warming, fracking presents major issues related to sustainability. And once you bring global warming in, we may be left wondering how to justify a practice that exhausts one vital resource to produce another that poses a direct threat to the viability of life on this planet. Uh, and speaking of global warming, fracking's contributions there are noteworthy. 
There's obviously the fact that oil and gas production of any sort means continued greenhouse gas emissions when those things are used and burned later on down the line. But fracking has issues uh, before that. Significant amounts of methane leak into the air as a result of fracking and related activities. Uh, I mentioned really briefly in the last episode that methane leaves the atmosphere faster than carbon, but its warming potential is uh, much higher while it is there. About 80 times higher, maybe more. One study from a couple of years ago suggests that methane from fracking has contributed significantly to the acceleration of global warming in the past decade, so not a great situation. Another serious issue is flaring. Natural gas is often found alongside oil deposits, uh, and flaring occurs when that gas is released during oil extraction and then burns in the air without being captured. In the U.S., that gas often isn't captured just because the price for natural gas isn't high enough for it to be worth it for the company to build out the infrastructure necessary to retrieve it. Uh, the practice is notoriously underregulated, and the regulations that do exist are poorly enforced. In the Permian Basin, which is uh, in Texas and New Mexico, enough gas was flared every day in 2018 to meet all of the residential gas needs of Texas. Instead, that flared gas just becomes pure carbon emissions, warming the planet without ever having been used for anything. But for a lot of political commentators, uh, none of this would be particularly relevant, right? The focus is solely on the supposed economic benefit or even necessity of fracking, uh, the amount of jobs it creates, the money it produces, all that stuff means that fracking is like a, a necessary compromise. So let's look at the economic dimensions of fracking. What do those jobs actually look like? What's the most dangerous job in America? I don't know that skydiving's a job, so I'd have to say oil field worker. This is a clip from a documentary called Oil to Die For, which is an interactive multimedia piece that's available online. It's got videos, audio, all that sort of stuff. I'll link to it on Twitter. It looks at the impacts of the fracking boom on North Dakota. And in this opening part here, it features interviews with um, paramedics and people who work in emergency services uh, talking about what they see in the oil field workers that they treat. Just the fact that you're drilling a hole over a mile deep into the ground, and then with horizontal drilling technologies now going horizontal at a 90 degree angle, drilling another mile or two that way, to make that work, you've got to put explosives down that hole to blow fractures in the rock to allow that oil to seep through. And then on top of that, you've got the machinery, the derricks, the drill bit, the heights that they're working at. All these hazards are there for a worker to be exposed to. Amputations, crushes, burns, lots of burns. The crews aren't safe there. The employees aren't safe there. Basically, what can happen will happen. I think maybe the newcomers coming into the oil field are, they, I don't think they know what to expect with how dangerous it actually is. Um, but I think they do learn pretty quickly. The rest of the piece tells the story of a 21-year-old oil field worker who died on the job after being exposed to toxic gases released during oil extraction and storage. His mother filed a wrongful death lawsuit um, against Marathon Oil, the company that owned the, uh, the site. And during those proceedings, it was revealed that Marathon had previously fired uh, a different employee who had tried to raise concerns about the company's negligence with regard to safety protocols. The case was eventually settled out of court, and Marathon didn't admit to any wrongdoing. This experience is unfortunately not as rare as it should be. Fracking can be seriously dangerous work. 
A 2015 report from the AFL-CIO claimed that North Dakota's on-the-job fatality rate for the oil and gas extraction sector was seven times higher than the national average for the industry, which is already an average that's much higher than most other industries. Around the same time, the AFL-CIO called the fatality rate in the oil and gas sector a crisis uh, and asked the U.S. government to look specifically into how to create safer working conditions for it. The danger here is partly due to the nature of the work itself, uh, as the paramedics in the audio clips noted, uh, and also because of an industry that routinely ignores and undercuts attempts to regulate it. The Oil to Die For documentary includes portions of testimony given by the marathon employee who was fired, and the documentary team brought in people to do um, like a reenactment of some of it. Here's a clip of a reenactment of that employee giving his testimony to an attorney. Yes, there's actually a PowerPoint presentation. Two lawyers came down and presented. Actually, one lawyer on the phone and one lawyer came down and presented how to write emails, what to say, what not to say, uh, to keep us out of out of criminal and litigation issues. Uh, it was um, about a four or five hour class. There was actually a PowerPoint. Yes, there was. With like examples and stuff. Examples. And would it be your testimony that the point of that was telling you not to put certain things in writing that could get them in trouble, even if it was the truth? Exactly. Basically telling you to bury information and not to memorialize it in, not to memorialize it in an email. So this is apparently just the way business is done in this industry. But fracking also puts incredible stress on workers in related industries. Like I mentioned earlier, fracking requires hauling a lot of materials, uh, like water or sand, and oil companies want to maintain high levels of production whenever possible which can be extremely demanding on truck drivers, as just one example. There are tons of accounts of drivers working, you know, 90, 100 hours per week, maybe even more than that, uh, just to stay on, on top of their schedule. This can obviously seriously impact their health and safety. And indeed, traffic-related injuries and fatalities spiked in places like North Dakota after fracking really kicked off. I also want to note the timing of the boom here. In many places, it overlapped with the onset of the Great Recession, when millions of people lost their jobs, their savings, their homes. They found themselves trying to find work in some of the most difficult economic conditions in a century. The oil and gas sector was one of the few that was actually doing significant amounts of hiring during this period. Tens of thousands of people, maybe even more, moved across the country to states like Texas and North Dakota to try to find work. Oil companies took advantage of all these circumstances wherever possible, kind of using people's economic need or even desperation as leverage to maintain these, uh, these working conditions. And despite all these risks and impacts on communities, jobs in the industry are not necessarily stable or well-paid. Most oil field jobs are non-union. In fact, many of these jobs are not even salaried. The oil industry uh, often uses a kind of complicated subcontracting setup, so the companies that own the oil fields don't actually employ the people working on them. Those workers are usually contractors of different companies, and they're paid hourly or daily. This helps suppress wages and then means that companies don't have to provide the kind of protections or benefits they might have to provide to, uh, you know, full-time employees. Now, despite all this cost-cutting, uh, fracking is not actually great business for a lot of investors. It's expensive to get going, usually requiring huge amounts of capital, and its profit margins are heavily impacted by swings in the price of oil. If those prices are too low, fracking in certain regions basically becomes a waste of money. Uh, this has led to some serious uncertainty and instability in the industry, as companies pour billions into new fracking ventures and then find out that they can't actually make any money. Over the years, this has led to um, a lot of analysis about the direction of the industry, whether or not it's uh, viable in the long term, what kind of wider economic impacts are possible if the industry really nosedives, 
earlier this year, uh, as coronavirus-related lockdowns brought down the price of oil, there was a lot of discussion about the industry as a whole, not just fracking. And some people argued that the price of oil bottoming out was an indicator that the industry is on its way out the door in due time. I'm not super convinced by this argument, to be honest, which is not to say that fracking will ever become consistently profitable or that future price drops in oil won't have major economic repercussions. But swings in oil prices have occurred pretty regularly over the past few decades, but the industry itself hasn't really gone anywhere. And fracking specifically has proven to be really persistent despite all of its own financial problems. In some ways, that volatility has actually been beneficial for a small handful of owners and investors within the uh, fracking business. What's happened over the past decade or so is that the industry kind of goes through these small boom and bust cycles, depending on the price of oil, which actually helps give these companies the justification they need for enforcing these precarious labor conditions we were just talking about. They spin up production when the price of oil is high, and then when it dips, they wind things down, which often means firing workers or maybe keeping their contracts open but not giving them any hours for weeks or months at a time. This obviously can be devastating economically for the communities that are reliant on the industry for employment, for tax revenue. But then when these companies spin production back up, they often do so with fewer workers, who they then you know, demand more labor from. They want to return output to the previous highs, but with fewer people. And this volatility also helps them make their case for deregulation because they sort of try to claim that they need this, you know, quote-unquote flexibility in order to deal with the challenging realities of the oil market or whatever. A lot of states have been very willing to deregulate and offer tax cuts and other incentives to try and keep fracking going. So the result is an industry that frequently goes through these economic cycles that are extremely damaging to most people, but make a few people super rich. As with other industries, this volatility has actually given capital greater power rather than weakened it. And so in a sort of similar sense, I would, I would probably treat the arguments about the oil industry as a whole being on its way out with some hesitation. The demise of that industry has been predicted uh, many times. For the last 20 years or so, at least, people have been making the case that the unpredictability of oil and the increasing affordability of renewables were going to converge, and you'd see this like uh, blossoming of renewable energy out of the remains of the fossil fuel sector. It hasn't happened yet, and I really don't believe this time is going to be any different unless there's some sort of, uh, you know, intervention into the market by the state or whatever. I could be totally wrong here, obviously. I would be thrilled to be. But oil is a very durable industry because there's currently no way to replace it wholesale. As much as renewable technology has progressed, the infrastructure for its total adoption just isn't really in place yet. And the characteristics that make oil unique as a form of energy aren't totally replaceable by renewables at the moment. So there's basically a, a guaranteed market for uh, fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. This means that whatever havoc the volatility of fossil fuels can wreak on the rest of the economy, they themselves survive the downturns. The only way this changes, I think, is, as I just mentioned, if some other factor were to intervene and put a stop to fossil fuel production, like, you know, the state intervening and banning something. But that doesn't seem likely within the U.S. government at the moment, right? That's why we're here talking about fracking. Despite all this nightmarish stuff, both major political parties in the U.S. are insistent on protecting and maintaining this practice. So given all of this, why is this even a conversation that's still ongoing within the Democratic Party? This is clearly an industry that ruthlessly exploits the environment and whatever communities it can in order to turn a profit, and its continued existence accelerates global warming. And when we take into consideration its 
blatant disregard for worker protections and environmental safety, its secrecy around its practices, its success at getting states and the federal government to bend laws and the tax code in its favor. We start to see that this is an industry that's really dominated by the oil and gas corporations. And it's, it's one in which the government has kind of withdrawn from its responsibility to the public. This is the kind of industry that party leaders are apparently so determined to preserve. The main thing we've heard from Biden and Harris is a proposal to end fracking on federal land. I would not stop fracking that's already begun, except to make sure that it's safe and the water supply is clear, clean. That's it. I would not allow fracking on federal property, new, uh, new, new fracking on federal property, but I would not stop it. This would be nice, although technically the majority of fracking occurs on state or privately owned land. So this is not maybe as ambitious a proposal as it might sound at first. And the thing about making sure the water is clean, I mean, I guess good luck, I suppose. The argument for the past few election cycles, both at the state and federal level, has been that opposing fracking means losing Pennsylvania, which means losing the Electoral College or a governorship or a Senate or a House seat. This is an argument that's been repeated so many times that it often doesn't even get questioned anymore. It's just kind of assumed to be true. I'm not as convinced by it. Fracking is not uncontroversial in Pennsylvania. It's not unambiguously popular there either. I don't think supporting a fracking ban guarantees an electoral loss in Pennsylvania, particularly if you're running on a platform that offers a meaningful alternative. If you aren't offering a serious alternative, if all of this pollution and environmental degradation and abuse of communities is really the best this economy can offer, then something is seriously wrong. One response to this type of argument about offering alternatives is that you can't just tell people you're going to shut down their entire way of life, their livelihood. It's not realistic politically. I've got two quick thoughts on that. The first is that this is actually false. It's already happening. The federal government and some state governments already have initiated programs to relocate people, even entire neighborhoods, in areas that are particularly vulnerable to climate change impacts like flood zones. These have progressed under both Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, the federal government plans to expand the funding for its program in the coming years. This is sometimes called managed retreat. And these are not always voluntary relocations. Uh, the government sometimes uses eminent domain in some areas to enforce its relocation policies. Relocation is a, a difficult ask. In some cases, the government is telling people who have lived in a particular area for generations that their community, its whole way of life in that location, is no longer possible because of climate change and that they have to move. So the idea that you can't just tell people that things are going to change or end or whatever, it's not a hypothetical. It hasn't been for a while. For better or worse, you know, the wheels on that are already in motion. My second thought on this issue is that regardless of how well these kinds of discussions poll during a political campaign, they will be increasingly necessary going forward. Certain ways of life, including certain jobs, will fundamentally change, both because of the impacts of global warming and as a result of efforts to mitigate it. Confronting this will require some very candid, painful conversations. But I think the worst possible way to approach this is to pretend that this is avoidable somehow and that it doesn't need to be addressed because I think people are already aware that this is the case. They're living with the effects of global warming in their communities, year in and year out. As a result, the ground underneath the political status quo of the past few decades is starting to shift. It could shift even more dramatically in the coming years. More to the point, though, I think this argument probably overstates the extent to which winning or losing any particular state is the key issue here. Discussions about the Electoral College calculus have become a way to deflect from any interrogation of what the Democratic Party's institutional interests actually are. I don't think there's any need to get like conspiratorial about this. Fossil fuels are key to the U.S. economy and its geopolitical efforts, and Democrats are candid about their interest in maintaining that. I was extraordinarily proud of the Paris Accords because, uh, look, I know, you know, uh, 
you know, I, I know we're in oil country, and uh, we need American energy. And, and by the way, uh, American energy production, uh, you wouldn't always know it, uh, uh, but, you know, it went up every year I was president. Um, and, you know, that whole suddenly America's like the, the biggest oil producer and the biggest guy. Uh, that was me, people. I just want you to. <laughs> so, so, uh, <laughs> it's a little like, you know, sometimes you go to Wall Street and folks would be grumbling about anti-business. And I said, have you checked where your stocks were when I came into office and where they are now? What, what are you talking? What are you complaining about? Just say thank you, please. This is from a 2018 event at Rice University in Texas. Fracking was crucial to the oil boom he's talking about here. For Obama, for Biden, for the Democrats as a party, there's nothing weird about saying you're proud of the Paris Accord and then immediately following that up by saying you're proud of facilitating an oil and gas boom that directly undermined that accord. Liberal allowances and justifications for fracking have been around for years, probably going to persist for as long as possible. Uh, throughout the height of the fracking boom, despite all of its dangers and impacts being well known already, uh, despite the reality of climate change becoming increasingly apparent, liberal pundits and politicians consistently talked about the need of fracking. They talked about how it would help lower gas prices for consumers, it would keep the U.S. economy competitive globally, it would help the U.S. achieve energy independence, lessen the need for foreign oil. Fracking has often been discussed by Democrats and liberal publications in really um, victorious terms, as though unlocking the potential of this industry was a major achievement and contributor to U.S. prosperity. Uh, I'll link some examples in the references document. So there may be some differences uh, between Democrats and Republicans in terms of management of the industry. Uh, the Democratic Party as an institution is not interested in really meaningfully challenging the industry at the moment. A fracking ban would signal that kind of challenge. So I'm not sure that the electoral college math or polling is as relevant as the current political discourse would lead us to believe. This is why I'm also not so convinced by the idea that Democrats are just campaigning on this uh, and then plan to ban fracking once they're in office. I don't really know that there's evidence to support that in the party's history on fossil fuels. Ultimately, here's the issue, I think. Any proposal for addressing climate change that doesn't see fracking as something that needs to end is an unserious proposal. All the talk about believing science, trusting the scientists, all that stuff, becomes irrelevant if a fracking ban is taken off the table. This is not because fracking is uh, like singularly responsible for global warming, but because it represents a continued commitment to and investment in the fossil fuel economy for the long term, which is untenable. A ban on fracking offers both a material and symbolic challenge to the fossil fuel status quo. To back down from even discussing the possibility of a ban is a major forfeit in the struggle against the worst excesses and exploitations of the fossil fuel industry. And it basically guarantees the continued emission of greenhouse gases at a time when the focus needs to be on cutting them as soon as possible. If democratic leadership is unwilling to draw a line even here, then where would they be willing to draw any line at all? Just say thank you, please. I think that's it for this one. As I mentioned, I'll have a list of references and further reading materials up over on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>